As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would come afresh and speak to us. Would you convict us by your Holy Spirit of those things we need challenging about? Would you encourage us where we need encouragement? Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you may have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, a young doctor came to see me with lots of questions about life and faith. And her first question to me, and I'm I'm not making this up, her first question was, what is the meaning of life? Which I think is a great question. Um, Not necessarily completely easy to answer, but a great question. I hardly knew where to begin, but I thought that a brief look first at the way the world is and a little reflection on history might be an okay place to start. So I spoke with her about how so much of what we see all around us, particularly when it comes to human suffering or injustice or sickness, begs the question, her question, what's the meaning of it all? I then tried in less than two minutes to lay out our Christian worldview of God's good creation and mankind's rebellion against God. I shared briefly of God's plans to restore all that is broken and how through Jesus he's provided a way for people to be put right with God. But I wonder, on this second Sunday of Advent, how do you answer that question? What is the meaning of life? And more personally, what is the meaning? Wow. No one was injured, it's all right. More personally, what is the meaning of your life? How do you view history? Are the events of life merely random, with no meaning, no purpose? Or is history and time itself moving in a particular direction? Now, I realize those are pretty philosophical questions, but... Our first verse of our epistle reading today began with, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So I think we're going to have to uh, look into this a bit more closely, because that's not easy. Actually, someone pointed out to me in the sacristy, they love it in this chapter, because we have that verse where Peter says, um, oh golly, I've lost it now. It says, "These, these things are kind of hard to understand. Well, they are but that's okay. There are a number of popular ways of thinking about time. One that's been around for a while is that we're marching ever onward and ever upwards, that we're inevitably and always making progress. That was certainly the prevailing view in the 19th century of of world history. German philosopher Hegel was one to advance such a notion, and there are people today who think that. They really do. But I wonder, is that an accurate way of viewing time, that we're always making progress? Now, I know that we we do have made amazing progress in medicine, in science, with, you know, the space program, next stop, Mars. But I doubt very much that the 200 million people who died due to war or oppression over the last 100 years would share much of the enthusiasm for the idea that we're getting better and better. 
Another approach found in ancient Greek philosophy considers history as a series of circles, that history is basically just repeating itself. So we're not really going anywhere, we're just going round and round. A more modern view is that presented in the second law of thermodynamics. Don't worry, I'm not going to try and explain this. I obviously don't really understand it, but I'm sure some of you do. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in very brief uh, form, it basically means that contrary to the idea that everything's getting better, everything's actually subject to entropy. Everything's actually coming undone and winding down, and that we go from order to chaos. Well, whatever your views, I think there are many people who do believe that by one cause or another, we are heading inexorably towards the end of the world. And however that may come about, the day will come. Sooner or later, when life can no longer be sustained, when something will change from what we just carry on with today. Well, in our epistle reading today, Peter is writing to those who are in danger of thinking that life is pretty meaningless, or that the universe is just a, a series of repetitive cycles. But that's not what the Bible insists upon. The Bible teaches us that history does have purpose and a direction, with a beginning and an end, and that we are moving inexorably towards the day when Jesus will return. This is what the season of Advent is all about. Waiting. Waiting for the coming of Jesus. Yes, remembering his first coming, but longing for his coming again. And the Bible is unequivocal about this. Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead, as we affirm every week in the words of the Nicene Creed. And the return of Jesus will mark the beginning of a new heaven and a new earth. No more death, no more evil, no more suffering, no more injustice, no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering. And the power of evil will be broken and banished forever. Hallelujah. Now, our passage this morning doesn't have a lot of details concerning the second coming of Jesus, but it highlights two themes, judgment and hope. And actually, it would be helpful if, if you can access one of the Black Pew Bibles, if you would turn to page 988. I'm just going to make you do a little bit of work this morning. So page 988, and you'll find there chapter 3 and verse 10 in the, se in the second column of that page, 988. And we read there in verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godless. And then a little bit lower down, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. This coming day, this day of the Lord, is a great and terrible day. For those who put their trust in God, it will be a good day, a day to look forward to with eager longing, for on that day all the waiting 
particularly that which we talked about last week, all of the waiting will be over. And so our cries for justice and for vengeance, for restoration, will be answered. By the way, it's okay to cry for vengeance. It's just we need to remember that God says, vengeance is mine, not ours. You remember last week we heard from Isaiah chapter 64, the cry that went out in the face of so much that is wrong in our world. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Well, on the last day, on the day of the Lord, he will do precisely that. I, I wonder, are you looking forward to that day? It's kind of a tricky question because... You know, if I, if I reflect on that, it's kind of, well, yes and no. But I think of my grandfather and my father, who both told me about 20 years apart from each other, weeks before they died, how much they were looking forward to seeing Jesus, how much they were looking forward to meeting him face to face. And, you know, that kind of hope, even in the face of death, makes a huge difference to the way we answer the questions about the meaning of life and the way we live our lives. But I have to acknowledge that in our day, the notion that Jesus is coming back, the idea that we'll one day see Jesus, is frankly pretty incredible to most people. It's simply laughable. It's a ridiculous fantasy, some will scoff, made up by religious fanatics to either to make them feel better when life is unbearable or, or to, to serve their own purposes to frighten everybody or something. But, you know, it's not a new idea. People were scoffing back in, in Peter's day. I hope you've still got your page open. You probably haven't. 988, just help you here, verses 3 and 4. First of all, you must understand this, that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. When God's people declare their hope in God, there will always be those who will say, yeah, right, where is this God of yours? Where is the God of justice? People scornfully ask the prophet Malachi. Where is your God? The psalmist records people asking. Well, in verse 5, Peter answers the scoffers. They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water. There was a beginning to our world. As we declare each week, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. The next words are creator of heaven and earth. But the scoffers ignore creation. Some, I know, have intellectual objections you know how the arguments go. The world's existed for billions of years, and you're telling me that God created it. You're telling me that it'll end with judgment. That's ridiculous. Well, is it? You know, the alternative to creation, the alternative to the biblical worldview that time is going somewhere and that God is coming back in Christ is hardly more credible you know, if you believe that we are merely the random product of uh, the collision of random forces, then yes, I suppose we start out with absolutely no meaning. And if we end with nothing but a loss of consciousness, 
then presumably we end with no meaning. And if that's the case, how on earth do you find meaning in between that? The epitaph on one grave sums it up neatly. I was nothing, I am nothing, so thou who art still alive, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, if that's your philosophy of life and time and history and everything else, well, okay, I guess eat, drink, and be merry. Not sure how that will work for you. But to the scoffers who maintain their scoffing, who say there is no judgment, Peter reminds us these folks are deliberately ignoring the facts. And by the way, it's important that we engage with facts and with truth. We're not just making up myths and fantasies. And, and Peter reminds them um, that verse 5 they, this is about them deliberately ignoring this fact, not only that by God's word was the world created, but when he speaks about water, he says, through which the world of that time was deluged with water and perished. You see, we've seen God come with judgment before. God has judged the world very dramatically in the flood. And that's not a story about a floating zoo and a family out for a picnic. It's a very grim story of God's judgment. And before the, the scoffers dismiss that as being fanciful, they should take note of the numerous stories in many cultures and many places that have a flood story. God is God. And he can absolutely intervene in the normal rules of nature. And we have precedent that he has. But, you know, I think for many of us who do believe the Scriptures, we do believe what we read in the Old Testament and the New, there's nevertheless a gnawing, nagging question in our minds that keep coming back, as, particularly as we wait in Advent for Christ's coming again, and it's this. Why is God taking so long? And, and, you know, we want to cry enough already. How much more pain and injustice and suffering does there need to be before God will come again? Surely Jesus should come back and wrap it all up. And so we find ourselves back to last week's cry from Isaiah, um, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And we talked about some of the benefits last week of our waiting on God not least that it is in waiting that we find that God is at work, not least that it is in waiting that we find that God is forming us and shaping us and molding our lives. But here, and I referenced it briefly last week, but I want to look at it further, Peter gives us another much more profound reason why God has us wait. The delay in Christ's return is not because this is some cosmic fairy story, nor is it because God is like an absentee watchmaker who doesn't care. No, on the contrary, the reason Jesus has not yet returned is because he cares so much. For God is patient, very, very patient. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you not wanting any to perish. Hear how Eugene Peterson expresses this verse in the message. God isn't late with his promise, as some measure lateness. He is restraining himself 
on account of you, holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. And you know, I think that is the refrain that we find in the Scriptures again and again. For we encounter God being merciful, God being patient, God who is slow to anger, long-suffering and abounding in mercy. He does not treat us as we deserve. And here we see it spelled out in black and white. God does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, sadly and tragically, heartbreakingly, some will perish, verse 7. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godless. There will be justice. There will be righteousness. There will be vengeance from God against all those who refuse to turn to him. But you know, I don't think that's really the heart of God. God is God, and he's just, and he's all-powerful, and he's mighty. So it's part of his character. But God's heart passionately longs for all to turn to him, to find forgiveness, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. And so in Advent, as we think about us waiting on God, I wonder, is there also a sense in which God is waiting on us? God is waiting for you. The longing in God's heart is for all people to come home to him. It's the message that we find throughout the scriptures. It's the message of God after he's divorced wayward Israel for all their many adulteries, all their turning their backs on him. And he calls for them to return as his bride. It's the message we saw in Isaiah 40 today. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. And those are not only words of tenderness and kindness. They're surely words of passion and pleading, an invitation to respond to God's love. And so the cry of the prophet Isaiah we then see in the gospel reading, repeated by John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord. And it's a cry to make way for God to come, for God to come to rescue, to restore, to deliver. And here's the thing, God did come, as promised, to feed his flock like a shepherd, gently to gather up the lost lambs. And he came first, not as judge, not in judgment. That was not his primary purpose in Christ's first coming. Rather, he came, flipping that round, to bear judgment, for judgment to be meted out on him so that we could come home, so that we could be forgiven. So to those who hear these words of warning, which is what this season is partly about, who, if they hear the alarms, if they hear the cry to turn, if they hear about God's judgment, and they think, well, God is so harsh, how can he punish people like that? How can we be banished from his sight forever? What kind of a God is that? I think we need to be ready to help people 
see that they're misunderstanding the good news of God, the good news of the gospel. For now there's time. And it's worth noting who are the people who make it through the day of the Lord? Who are those who make it through the final judgment? Are they those who are good enough, moral enough, upright enough, religious enough? No. Verse 9, the only qualification there is what? Repentance. They're the ones who repent. As someone once put it, it's not the ones who've done the most, but the ones who know the most has been done for them. Do you know how much God has done for you? For that is surely good news. Any other system would be based on merit, and then we're all, we're all going to fail. We can't possibly succeed on a merit-based uh, approach to getting right with God. I mean, it's impossible. Oh, that this Advent season we would hear the voice crying in the wilderness, calling us to turn, calling us to repent, calling us to give up on our self-reliance, calling us to come home to God. I want you to listen to what someone has written about our nation. I know we always have to be careful because, you know, we push buttons, but listen to this. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. And this is someone talking about the United States. We've been preserved in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, in wealth and power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. Anyone know who wrote that? Abraham Lincoln wrote that. He wrote that in March of 1863. It was his proclamation of a national day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Feels rather up to date, doesn't it? May we never be too proud of our achievements, our nationality blessings of this life. May we be those who are found to be humble, who will come to God, who will pray, who will turn back to him. God is so very patient with us. He holds open his scarred hands and invites all to come to him, that none should perish. Jesus has not yet returned for one reason above all others. To give more time for more people to repent and turn to him. And if you have never done that, 
If there's someone here this morning who has never turned away from themselves and turned to Christ, I invite you to turn to him today. For God will not wait forever. The day of the Lord will come, and then it will be too late. And of course, none of us knows how many days we have on this earth. None of us knows when our lives will come to an end. But today, there's time. Today, the door of salvation is wide open. And to those here, of which I know there are many, who are believers, Peter has some final words for us. In the light of all of this, what kind of a people should we be? In verse 11, Peter exhorts us to live lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for Christ's return. It's this active waiting I talked about last week. It's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting of lives that are lived out in holiness, set apart for God. Lives that are lived out for godliness, loving God and loving our neighbor. This is the word of challenge and encouragement to us not to give up. Yes, life may be full of very difficult trials. And we're kind of to expect that. And yes, waiting is so very, very hard. But don't give up. The end is in sight. Jesus is coming again, and he is making all things new. I'm so grateful for those conversations I had with my grandfather and my dad. They knew that. Their faces were radiant as they thought of the glorious hope. You know, one of the ways that we can wait with holiness and godliness is by not keeping this good news of God and his salvation to ourselves. I wonder, who, who can you invite to enter into this? Who can you share your faith with? Or it's a very easy thing. Who could you invite to church next week or the week after? We've got these special Christmas services coming up. It's a wonderful opportunity to invite people to church. I've been thinking about it, and I've got, I've got one person in mind, and, and, and I, I think I need to find some more. But who can you invite to Lessons and Carols next week? Let people hear the great salvation story through the scriptures and the music. Let people hear, and on Christmas Eve. Well, let's, let's close with, with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the Lord of time and of history. Thank you that you are coming again. Lord Jesus, please help us by your Holy Spirit to be godly in the struggles that we face as we wait for your return. Help us to be holy even this week as we continue to wait for the new heavens and the new earth. And, and just, would you keep your, your eyes closed and heads bowed in prayer? You know, if there's anyone here today who's not yet turned to Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. And I invite you to pray this prayer with me silently in your heart. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that you are God and that I have turned against you by what I've done in thought and word and deed, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes deliberately. I'm sorry for the way I've lived without you.
and I ask you to forgive me. Please, Holy Spirit, help me to turn away from rebellion and to put my trust in you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. Please come into my life and take complete control of it, that I may be ready for when Jesus comes again. Amen.